SequelCast 2 is part of the Batman Podcast Network. For more information, go to batman-on-film.com. You got a problem? After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is SequelCast. They are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast. And your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2, a podcast looking at movies in a franchise one film at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is Thrasher. Oh, this, all this dandruff. Flaky McFlakerson, yeah, we are talking about <laughs> Death Wish 5, Face of Death, uh, which had a theatrical release, which surprised me, because um, Charles Bronson is pretty uh, pretty long in the tooth in this one. It was directed by Alan A. Goldstein, produced by Damian Lee, of a screenplay by Alan A. Goldstein, based on a story by Michael Colery and Michael and Alan A. Goldstein, starring Charles Bronson, Leslie Ann Down, and Michael Parks, and Saul Rubinick. Music by Terry Pulmeri, cinematography Curtis Peterson, edited by Peter Rand, with a running time of 95 minutes. According to Box Office Mojo, this had a budget of $5 million, with a box office of $1.7 million. That is just domestic, so meaning U.S. and Canada. Um, it, I think it had to have recouped its budget after the, the video stuff. And um, unlike Death Wish 2 through 4, this is not Canon Films, because Canon Films was bankrupt. Well, it's it's kind of half of Canon Film. Uh, yeah, yes. at this point, Canon Films was no more, and Man, uh, Manaheim Golan and Yoram Globus had had a falling out and had gone there. We're in we're in we're in a separation as far as creative and business partnerships went. So Manaheim Golan somehow managed to retain the rights to Death Wish and made this one of the flagship films of his 21st Century Film Corporation. And I get it. I mean, Death Wish is a recognizable name. Charles Bronson did so many of these ham and egger actioners that, uh, according to the this book I read called Bronson's Loose that I referred to, really excellent book on the Death Wish series, um, this budget was $5 million. $4 million of that was Charles Bronson's paycheck to convince him to come back. <laughs> I could totally believe that. And what's wild is I'm looking at only made $1.7 million, at least that's the, the estimate I could find. And uh, Golan was so ready to bank on Death Wish, they were ready to start production on a sixth Death Wish movie later that year, but it never happened. Uh, yeah, it would have been called Death Wish 6, A uh, New Beginning or something like that. And uh, it the New Vigilante, the new least Vigilante. inspired title you could have. Well, and, and it would have had like a younger person or perhaps some kind of a passing the torch with the Charles Bronson cameo would be my guess. Um, and... But I have to say one thing I've really liked about Death Wish 4 and this film, Death Wish 5, is these sequels get quirkier as they get along. Uh, and um, a lot of, and less, um, I don't know, less rapey, less distasteful, less less pervy. You, well, you actually, say no. that. Eh. You say that, but I've got, there's a scene or two I'm going to have some special comments for. Okay. Um but but like strangely enough though though the quirks in this movie are very charming. Like this movie I found it to be better than I like better than I expected and better than it has any right to be. 
Uh, right. I think I, I was trying to get at that. And um, this has what fans of the Gilbert Gottfried's Amazing Colossal co- Podcast would call Gilbert-level nudity, where he likes something called casual nudity, where someone <laughs> just happens to be naked as they're doing a thing or doing a job. In this case, uh, because a lot of the movie is, is centered around the fashion industry, which is, which is just a strange choice. I don't understand that at all. You just get a lot of sort of incidental nudity of women changing in the in the room as they get ready to go on the catwalk for the fashion show. Well, so we talked about how, how different this movie feels. This movie feels so different, and I could not find any verification of this, so chances are maybe it isn't true. But this felt like a script that already existed for a completely separate revenge thriller. And then Bronson got attached, and so they made it a Death Wish movie, which is why his methodology in this movie is almost completely different from his methodology in all the other films. I, I don't I don't think that's the case, but I mean, certainly they had been wanting to do a, a Death Wish 5 for a while in some form or another, and we mentioned the bankruptcy of Canon Films, but look, like this one came out in 94, and... The last one came out in like 88 or 89. or Yeah, Canon was bankrupt in 88. So, I mean, it had been quite a few years. Uh, Charles Bronson was in his 70s. Uh, and I think he looks good for his 70s, I might add. You know, he kept himself in shape. It's not like you're watching uh, a modern day sort of like fat, wobbly Steven Seagal in an action film, which kind of strains <laughs> credulity. Well, I mean, he, he clearly tries to keep himself fit, and, it, and, it, and, and I think he also sort of saves it up, because when Bronson's on screen, it is either no physical activity or a hell of a lot of physical activity for a 70-year-old. Yes, and it does a thing you see in a lot of 19... Uh, what am I talking about? In, in these movies, you see now quite a lot of with the aging action stars, like those Expendables movies we talked about. They have to film the, these action stars... From the waist up, you don't see them running around a lot, or if they do, it's their stunt doubles, because your legs are the first to go, as the late Christopher Lee said. Um, <laughs> your legs are the first to go, because I'm feeding them into the wood chipper. Peter Jackson, that is not how a man sounds like when he's stabbed to death. I know I stabbed 72 Nazis in World <laughs> War Two as a secret agent for their majesty the Queen. They do not sound like... Oh, they sound like. <laughs> Christopher Lee is a fascinating figure. If only he could have faced off against Charles Bronson in one of these movies. Well, what would, what would that have sounded like? Hey, Pally, I think I'm going to stab you with a bullet. I did not mean to shoot your wife, Mr. Kersey. I don't care. Oh, no. It's loaded. Bang. Oh. Oh. <laughs> Good, accurate death rattling. Yeah, you had to do a pause at the, like, is sort of a choking on the tongue. Um, I, I'm really, you know, one Christopher, we're going to get back to Death Wish 5, dear listeners, in one moment, but I do one Christopher Lee series that had sequels, and I'm, I'm sure there's quite a lot of them, not to mention the Dracula films come to mind, but a shorter one is... The Wicker Man, because this oh. you had The Wicker Man, you had the Nicolas Cage remake, and then you had a sequel, The Wicker Tree, based on the novel Cowboys for Christ, from the same author. Oh, yeah. 
And Christopher Lee was meant to be in the wicker tree, but his health was too poor, and so he has a small part. Um, but, but someone else kind of plays the same sort of role as he had in the first one. Or, or an analog to it. Um, we, we should put a pin in that, but back to Deathwish <laughs> 5. Um, out of the actors in here, you mentioned you had some interesting characters, and you have Michael Parks as a character actor who died not that long ago, and he's been in nearly everything. He was in... Um, and in his role as the villain, I think, make it one of the more memorable villains in this whole series. He has kind of a southern accent going on. He's this sleazy, uh, kind of drug-running guy in charge of these uh, of this corrupt uh, modeling agency. Well, he's he's a big wig that rose out of the Irish mob. In fact, actually, I don't believe we ever see him involved in drugs. It's almost all money laundering. Although that being said, I'm sure he's laundering money from the sales of drugs. Probably. I guess I had drugs in the mind because of last week's Death Wish 4. I think, I think what makes him work as a villain is unlike every villain we've had in this series so far, he is the first villain that has motivation. It's funny you say that, but yeah, you're right. He has motivation. You see him kind of from the beginning. It's not like he just pops up in one scene, does something nasty, and then he gets to come up and it's like 45 minutes later. He's peppered throughout the movie. I think the the pacing of this movie is, much like Death Wish 4, is really like neat and trim and to the bones, which is uh, to be admired. It's um, And... Yeah, there, there's something here where, like, the kills that go on, sort of like a Death Wish 4, and perhaps this is due to Charles Bronson's age, were more like something out of a Bugs Bunny cartoon at points. Yeah, there are moments when it is almost puckish, and I also... Some of the reasons that this feels uh, so different from the other Death Wish films is that apparently at this point... And, you know, Bronson, you're going to listen to Bronson when he makes demands or polite suggestions about the direction your Death Wish movie should take. He wanted Kersey to be more sympathetic, kind of less mean. And I guess when it comes down to it, less violent. And I don't know if the less violent was to make him seem more likable or more of a hero or if it was simply because Bronson didn't want to do that much stunt work. But like it's it's a softer it's the softest version of Kersey we've seen since the prologue of the first Death Wish. I want to do a Death Wish that my kids can watch on the couch with the family, uh, except for the boobies. You know, all all I could think uh, is uh, this movie. Uh, the a year later, the Simpsons critic crossover, A Star Is Burns, would air, which has the joke about Death Wish Nine, and the clip of the movie is just Bronson on a hospital bed going, "Hey." I wish I was dead. You can listen to our thoughts on that by downloading Shermometer or Critiquing the Critic, as we covered that episode. It's not available for download as of this recording, but I will add it up to uh, sequelcast2.com, where you can listen to all the episodes we have up to date. Please leave us a nice review on Apple Podcast app. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, so with, with Death Wish 5, I mean, around this time, Charles Bronson... Um, was was towards the end of his life, and he some of what he did, he did three uh, well-received miniseries called A Family of Cops, which I've never seen, but sounds somewhat interesting, despite their kind of dumb title, frankly. Um, and after Death Wish, a lot of his movies had, like, death in the title. Like, he 
kind of got it gave a new shot in the arm to his career. So it may be on some level he felt like he he owed something. Um, in that book, Bronson's Loose, I, I read again about the making of these films. He talked about with Death Wish Five, he was wanting to make it into kind of almost like a satire of the other Death Wish films. Hmm. Satire seems a bit highfalutin for Death Wish, uh, if you ask me, but it it, it certainly uh, cottons to your theory about the the lighter tone and um. The director mentioned he actually seemed to be enjoying himself on this one, which didn't seem to be the case with the other Death Wish films. He, there, there's something about Charles Bronson where he viewed acting a, as work, and I don't think that's a bad thing, really, but he just sort of showed up, did his job, and went home. Well, you know, that 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 looseness is in this film. I, I think it does come across that he's enjoying himself a bit more, I guess. You, you know what you know what it feels like it, it it's it's like when when you're technically retired but you keep getting paid to do consulting work which mainly just mm-hmm. involves sitting down shaking hands and telling people what they want to hear which i've been told is a very good feeling like i think that's what's going on with bronson in this film right or when you're doing consulting work like the stakes are not quite as high you're not in the weeds you're just kind of the cowboy that comes in and saves the day and, and goes home uh but yeah let's talk about the the plot proper so Kersey is uh, once again in New York City, and he has a much longer, younger girlfriend. Uh, this uh, this time it's Olivia Regent, played by Leslie Ann Down. And it's, it's a British woman. He has a type. Uh, that's true. It was a British woman in the second one. Um, and he goes to a fashion show, and I believe what Olivia does is design the outfits. Is that right, or do I have that wrong? Yeah, she is. Uh, as I, it's. They don't go into too much detail, but the implication is she she is the designer. So this is this is her show. It's the show of the the clothing that she's been uh, putting together. Although that being said, like aside from backstage, we we only see two outfits or two or three outfits ever actually modeled in this movie that has so much modeling to the point where it's like the whole fashion show is just the same three models in the same one outfit, just walking in circles on the stage. Yeah, and the, and the outfits look a little bit um, really kind of pedestrian. Like, I don't watch a whole lot of fashion shows, but uh, my wife on the TV a lot has uh, Project Runway and those kind of things where you see these up-and-comers trying to get into the fashion design industry, and there's quite creative stuff on that show. And, and I mean, nothing here really stood out on the runway, and clearly the budget is limited. It does not look like a glitzy runway for these models. This is not Milan, Italy, okay? Like, this is... Yeah, I mean, is like, it, it is it is way too small. I think also what it is is that th- these aren't original creations. I think this is just off-the-shelf hot couture uh, <laughs> that they thought looked good enough, and that's what they're wearing, which might explain why some of the stuff has a slight 70s tinge to it, so maybe it was something that was hanging around. Vintage. But, uh, but yeah, but they're, but they're, they're dating. But it turns out uh, Olivia, uh, Olivia has a daughter, and that daughter is from a previous marriage. And that previous marriage is to uh, Tommy O'Shea, the aforementioned uh, mob boss, who apparently this studio where they're doing all the fashion work is built on top of a laundry in the garment district or dry cleaners in the garment district, which which he is using to launder money. <laughs> oh, and dry cleaners, hence the name launder money, you know, are a classic source for laundering money. It It, oh, it yeah. is a front for you know, businesses that you pass money through so it doesn't get detected by the feds and, and whatnot. And and you do all these things, and it's uh, that that you have this relationship set up right off the bat uh, with the villain, 
having been formerly married to Charles Bronson, um, his girlfriend, and that they have a daughter, kind of like they had in the other film, uh, or a former daughter from a, a prior relationship, Chelsea, played by Erica Lancaster. And Chelsea is younger than I would have thought. You know, I think one of the nice things about Death Wish 4 is the daughter was a teenager and, and got to have a little bit of a relationship with um, Charles Bronson. But in this one, there, there's less character work uh, going on on that angle. So this series has been so cruel to its principal female characters that I was terrified we were going to see something awful happen to Chelsea. Uh, I was so relieved when by the end of this movie, the worst thing that had happened to her, she had been uh, kidnapped. Uh, yeah, they're easily... It, had this been a uh, a film by... Uh, oh, who was the fellow that directed? Michael Winter? Is that the guy who did the first three films? Uh, Michael yes. Winter, Michael Winter, or something like that. Um, you, you would have seen a scene with her with like the six-year-old daughter with like squibs on her or something going off, being blasted at point blank range. But yeah, that that she is not in that much peril is a nice touch. And I also like that you, you see that Paul Kersey cares for his new girlfriend, where Tommy O'Shea, you know, like grabs her hand really hard and puts a bruise on it, and it sets right off the bat. I mean. He doesn't like shoot her or something or, or, or punch her in the face really hard, but it says off the bat that he means business. He's not a nice guy. And Charles Bronson does a good job acting with the concern on, on his face where he's like, who's this guy? I want to meet this Tommy O'Shea. I want to, I want to talk to him despite the fact that he's a dangerous mobster. And, uh, and there's a running theme in this movie where like he doesn't want to use guns anymore, although he does later and they don't make a big deal out of it. Um, he spends more time fondling his six shooter than he's and having flashbacks to earlier in the film than he does actually shooting people with it. Yeah, I think had you developed that, you could have had some really neat kind of, I don't know, sympathetic or PTSD kind of moments. But I would like to talk about the actor Michael Parks for a minute. Sure. Because he has been in, in so many things. I think recently, uh, what I've enjoyed him in is some of the more recent kind of oddball Kevin Smith films, where he was in both Red State and Tusk mm. as the villains. Have you ever seen those? I have not seen Tusk, but I did see Red State. And I think Red State in particular, he's this really like crazy um, kind of like fundamentalist cult preacher person and has a lot of really meaty monologues to go on. Yeah, he you know he played he he played a good uh, a good cult leader in that. I think I I don't want to turn this into a whole conversation about Red State, but overall I enjoyed that. He was a very integral part of that film. That was an ending that really took me by surprise. The ending of that movie was meant to be something more um, high budget and bigger in scope. And they had to uh, uh, change it with when they had to work with you know not very much. It's it's one of those instances where the where the limited resources ended up leading to a cleaner, uh, more impactful ending. I, I think so. Yeah, you get to use your imagination a bit. Um, what are some? Is there a movie you can think of that you liked Michael Parks in? Oh, actually, let me uh, dig up his filmography. Real. Sure. While you do that, I'll just mention here. you know an, another sort of. I say recent, but this movie is like over 25 years old at this point, is In From Dusk Till Dawn, uh, written oh, by Tarantino yeah. and directed by uh, Robert Rodriguez. Near the beginning, uh, there's this shootout in a convenience store, and Michael Parks is the guy working the store, but it's, uh, it's a pretty pretty good part. 
albeit brief. Oh my gosh. So I guess I'm going to have to bring this up only because uh, I recently packed up my copy of this DVD because we are moving. Mm. But he was he was in the Jim Wynorski classic uh, Sorceress, which oh. I believe was one of the Roger Corman New World Pictures releases. Is this one of the fantasy pictures they made in Argentina? Uh, yeah, so it's it's you know it's it's like barbarian women wearing barely anything, uh, beating people up for an hour and a half. Yep, they did. Um, I didn't see that one. I think I might have seen one called maybe the Warrior and the something or the Barbarian and the something. Uh, oh wait, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of a different sorceress. This is about a guy whose husband is practicing witchcraft. The, the sorceress is perhaps the most '80s <laughs> film title you could think of. So you're you're forgiven, I suppose. But but looking at Michael Park's roster of movies, there's no lack of films that he did. He was a working character actor that did solid work in often not that solid projects. Oh hell, he played Jack Kirby in Argo. Oh wow, okay, cool. There we go. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of fun stuff here, and here with with Tommy O'Shea, just despite the last name and that he's part of the Irish mob, he does not lay on like a, a thick Lucky Charms Irish accent. To to my ears, he did a little bit of a Southern accent, he, or he tries to do the charming kind of thing. Well, he gets he keeps changing up his voice because like when he's threatening people, his voice is completely different from when he's casual conversation. But but which is also different from the voice he has when he's talking with his lackeys, which is also different from the voices he puts on when he threatens people. Like uh, one of the the subplots in this movie is that some of the people in the dry cleaners uh, are getting tired of working with his with the with the mob, and there's one of them who's African American, and in a scene that really really turned you against Tommy O'Shea, he puts on this, this like affected, Oh God, there's a, there, there is a name for it, but this like, this like affected stereotypical, like African-American accent and mm-hmm. starts like threatening the guy and talking about, you know, how much he knows. So it's like a step and fetch it kind of Amos and Andy sort of. That's what I was looking for. Yeah. Thing. Um, and yeah, I think, but he, you can tell Michael Parks is having a lot of fun with this role, and as reminded a little bit of Jack Nicholson doing the Joker in the 89 Batman film. <laughs> There's just a nice kind of looseness to to his performance, um, where, you know, he's dangerous, but kind of jokey, and uh, I, I don't know, I thought he was just, it was just always really fun to watch when he was on screen. And hey, speaking of the Joker, it's revealed in this scene that the dry cleaners has a big old vat of acid just hanging out. Yeah, that too also reminded me of Batman. It was, and when, you know, there's a, a thing in um, playwriting and screenwriting called Chekhov's Gun, right? Where in Act 1, <laughs> if you show a guy loading a gun, he's going to fire it in Act 3. And as soon as they show this vat of acid and they toss like a dummy into it or this guy's expensive clothes. Just for the hell of it. Too. Just for the hell of it. And you see the kind of crappy bubbling effects. Like, it, someone's going to get tossed in there. And uh, by God, they they do so. So... <laughs> it is so like what what purpose does that serve in the in the dry cleaners normal operations because i realize dry cleaners do work with a number of chemicals some of them a bit caustic some of them a bit dangerous but a giant vat of undiluted acid what do you do with that you know what i think is because this is a front for the mob they use it to dispose of bodies 
<laughs> they just they just tell people, oh, don't go over there. That's the special danger vat that we need. Because <laughs> like it's not fenced off. Yeah, there's, there's no the railings. It's just there in the nope. middle of the floor on a platform. It's the Tony Soprano pit. Yeah. Uh, as the movie kind of wheezes along to set up the plot, you have uh, a DA and a detective visit Paul Kersey, and they're talking about Tommy O'Shea. And the DA, Brian Hoyle, is played by Salt Rubinek, and his the detective is uh, Hector Vasquez, played by Miguel Sandoval. And um, Saul Rubinek... They are both really good. Yeah, and Saul Rubinek in, in particular um, is an actor I like a lot. He's He's been in tons of stuff. I recognize him most from True Romance, where he plays a movie producer based off of Joel Silver, where there's a big climax in his mansion uh, at the end of the film. So my wife and I are uh, re-watching Star Trek The Next Generation from the beginning, and we recently saw uh, Saul Rubinek's episode where he's the alien collector who tries to add data to his collection. Oh, sure, yeah. he's. Um, hey, there's something about Saul Rubinek. He just really looks like like an, like an everyman to me. He just looks like a normal person off the street. He does not have movie star looks. He plays these kind of quirky little characters, and I think he's a lot of... Fun. I don't think I've seen him in a role as formal as what we get in this movie, but you, uh, you, you buy him in this situation, and it's it's just nice to see that in this movie the girlfriend um, Olivia Regent is less of an afterthought than the women in some of the other Death Wish movies. Well, she gets she gets she gets a bit more of an arc. Um, yeah. But, and and she's not like dispatched within the first act. She sticks through a lot of this film. She doesn't make it out alive, but she's in most of the movie. Um, but, um, Kersey's relationship with, uh, with DA Hoyle and uh, Lieutenant King, this would seem to imply that there's a whole secret death wish movie. We didn't get to see between four and five where apparently, he is under the vigilante killer is under witness protection. And it mm-hmm. seems to imply that they well, no, it doesn't even apply. They do flat out state. Those two those two guys know uh Bronson's whole criminal history, and he is living in New York, you know, a place he's been banned from multiple times. I kind of wish this movie would have started with um Paul Kersey not having a mustache as a way to disguise himself. And then when he gets back into action, his mustache, he like eats a can of spinach and his mustache grows back in full force. He just, he glares and it just pops back out. It's like Samson's hair. Uh. <laughs> but yeah, so, um, so Tommy O'Shea is put, trying to put the pressure on Olivia Regent to, uh, to ba- basically to, to let him back into her life. She wants nothing to do with it. Uh, you know, she wants she wants her daughter Chelsea to have a to have a, a a better father one one who's not involved in those specific kinds of criminal activities. Although nobody knows, aside from the the agents, nobody knows that Kersey is the the vigilante from a decade or so before. Um, and this all comes to a head where uh, Kersey takes Olivia to this restaurant where he's where he proposes to her. But Tommy O'Shea and a lot of his goons and floozies are there as well, and he makes sure that Kersey can see him so that it helps establish an alibi. But in what could be one of the most distasteful scenes in the entire series, uh, after the proposal, after um, Olivia says yes, uh, she there's a there's a spill. And so she goes to the uh, 
she goes to the woman's room uh, to clean up. And this is planned because the spill happened because one of the goons bumped into a waiter that was near her with some drinks. So she goes into the women's room and, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, Freddie Flakes Garrity, played by Robert Joy, comes into the restroom in complete and very convincing drag, locks the door behind her, ties her to a chair, and in a very gruesome scene, uh, just smashes her head repeatedly into a mirror. And it's it's really difficult to get to. Uh, there's a lot of heavy elements of transphobia in this scene. And this scene is so bizarre. It happens so quickly. I could not tell whether this was like a professional assault that that uh, Tommy O'Shea arranged to, to, to get at his wife or whether this was just a crazy person who goes into women's restrooms and smashes people's faces into mirrors. I think it was a professional hit. Oh uh, no, it absolutely was, but he's so fucking crazy in mm-hmm. this scene. Just the way he talk, he talks like a cross-dressing serial killer from a seventies exploitation movie. Yeah, no, it's definitely not subtle. And, and you have all this stuff, um, Going, on. I think what what thing like the attack is pretty brutal, but the way her face looks afterwards, I I wish it would have looked more disfigured. Well, yeah, because when she finally does get out of the hospital after some reconstructive surgery, and after even the doctor says, you know, I'm gonna, I gotta be straight with you, uh, Paul, she is uh, not gonna come out looking the same, like. It really is just some red zigzags painted on her face. There's no real scarring. But also, like, with those zigzags, like, she she would probably still have some bandages or stitches on them or something. But they, like, it's like somebody took a red marker and just went, weep, whoop, weep, whoop, yeah, on, and I, on I, a I, couple I, of key locations. Yeah, and I don't expect her to look like Quasimodo or anything, but it, it they could have done something, I think, more more dramatic. But, but regardless, the way that... that shot is is filmed with her being assaulted in the bathroom uh is is pretty powerful and it, it's it's good motivation uh, albeit at the expense of one of paul girl uh, kersey's girlfriends which is always the motivation for these films really um to, to go and and get his revenge yeah, and, and it is funny because like, he, he really does drag his feet on going full vigilante because initially when she gets out of the hospital, so apparently she does know about more Tommy O'Shea's criminal dealings than, than she let on. So she agrees that she's going to get she's going to testify against him and get into witness protection herself. And so Kersey um, goes to call uh to call Hoyle to let him know. And there's this nice scene of Hoyle's really nice scene of Hoyle's family life uh, with, and Mickey King is there being a dinner guest and halfway through the conversation, Paul realizes that somebody is listening on the line gets paranoid and says, well, uh, she's not going to be testifying. So she, she's out. She wants nothing to do with it. Uh, um, which is just him lying to buy time. So he's going to see them in person to let them know that she will testify but the mob still finds out, and that's when the violent ball really gets bouncing because uh, in a pretty nice uh, action scene with a decent sense of space, uh, Olivia's house gets assaulted by uh, Freddie Flakes and a bunch of other goons, and it's just a shoot 'em up free-for-all chase through the house. And Bronson goes full Donkey Kong on them. There's this scene where he runs upstairs, picking up these big vases and chucking them down the stairs as he goes. Yeah, it's uh, 
it, it's a nice little scene, and that I mean, the whole concept that he doesn't want to use his gun um, to sort of, I guess, atone for his past. I, I think there's really something there, but that it never builds up to a moment where he he kind of wrestles with picking up a gun and using it later in the the film and sort of the climactic showdown he picks up a gun and starts firing it at people there's no weight to that you could have had some weight to that or had some meaningful payoff and uh but yeah him in the house throwing the the bases kind of jumping around it's a bit also a bit of home alone it feels like (laughs) yeah i almost expected him to kevin McAllister the situation um but you know it all leads it all leads up to the rooftop he ends up jumping off the roof uh and landing on some garbage bags which completely break his fall and he's perfectly fine so i guess there's no glass in those garbage bags no collapsed boxes with sharp corners not just that he landed on the garbage bags in such a way where he doesn't seem winded at all i mean even from having something to cushion your fall to fall from that distance if you're not doing it correctly it could still knock the wind you know throw you for a loop well you know beyond that that's like such a big stack of of garbage bags that's one house Either they are the most wasteful couple in New York, or there was an expository line about a sanitation worker strike that got cut from an earlier scene. <laughs> well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. I'll tell you a story out of my real life that is not very interesting, but it has to do with garbage. Here in Portland, Oregon, because we're on the West Coast and, you know, things tend to be more environmentalist, uh, they passed a thing where within city limits, they only pick up the trash once every two weeks. Really? Yeah, recycling's every week, trash is once every two weeks. And you also have a third option for trash, which is, um, oh, like compostable things, like like chicken bones or, or, or apple cores and that sort like of thing. Like organic stuff. Or organic, yeah, um, that can, organic stuff. But because of that, especially when I lived in a house with several roommates, uh, if they're pretty sloppy, you can have overflowing trash bags in the dumpster, just like we see in this film. Mm. And I think it also caused a bit of a rat problem, and it's um, a nice idea to do trash less often, but it, it doesn't always uh, pay off, I think. What you need is import some owls to eat those rats. Yeah, they need to call um, Mrs. Brisby, and her rats of Nim will be on the scene with Dom DeLuise the cat to get rid of all the uh, animal problems. Which that had a sequel, did it not? Uh, yes, which Don Bluth disavowed. What, really? Don Bluth turning down a sequel to a cartoon? Well, he, they didn't, apparently they didn't ask him to do it. They just did it. Oh. Who, whoever, whoever had the rights at the time just did that movie and he was, uh, I don't believe he was involved. Because he did American Tale 1 through 4, lest we forget. Like he, you know. And... He did all four? I thought he just did the first two. No, he did all four. Um. And, wow. And he did uh, all all the spinoffs to, I mean, there's nothing wrong with, you know, doing work and keep on, you know, reprising your role, especially in animation, is much easier than with these live action pictures. But um, he, he did the part of whatever, the sidekick dog in the All Dogs Go to Heaven TV show and Christmas special and the, the sequels and stuff. <laughs> but that they did it without him, without asking is, um, it's too bad because I think they could have. You know, animation, you don't have to pay actors as much as for live action, uh, for better or for worse. And I think the novel does have a follow-up. So, I mean, you've got source Mm -hmm. material to work with. Um, 
but anyway, um, so at this point, oh, and in that, and in that, uh, actually, is it that scene where, where, uh, where Olivia dies or is it, is, is it later? My timeline's kind of messed up. Uh, it's, it's later. It's after the soccer ball. Oh, right. Oh, right, right. So at this point, Curse is like, well, my people have been threatened. So he, uh, this is when Kersey begins his, his revenge, but it's a different methodology. We see a lot of him stalking all the mob of uh, the mob people, including, so there's this one mob guy who's always sucking on a lollipop who I, I can best describe him as gummo Travolta. Eh. He looks like he's trying to be Travolta so hard, but he's not that good at it. But it is kind of endearing. Like of all of all the like he and Freddie Flakes are the only mafia guys with any personality at all, and he's just oozing it, even if it isn't the best, most threatening personality. Um, but you know, we see. Oh, and there's a there's a there's a uh, a woman uh, who is a uh, uh, there's a uh, Janice Amori is a character played by uh, Lisa Anouye, uh, uh, who is uh, who is a, a New York police detective. And she's also investigating uh, what the mob's up to, and so there's this whole thing where uh, one of the uh, one of the guys from uh, the uh, the dry cleaners has decided he's going to help gather evidence against the mob because of all the stuff they've been up to. So he wears a wire disguised as a pin, and uh, and uh, meets Gummo Travolta, and they have this whole exchange, and that's when he realizes, oh, they know we must be onto them because they won't talk about laundering money. They will only talk about clothing donations for the homeless. So, you know, he, he leaves, uh, eventually gets caught by them later, and, like, they cut him open with this, I guess it's a sheet slitter, but it really is like a chainsaw. It's like a, <laughs> a chainsaw um, thing. But um, Janice Amori is there, and she just gets flat out run over by a car. And they hold on that. We see the impact. We see the flip. We see her land. Once again, Kersey's in the hospital uh, uh, with, with another woman because he happens to be there tailing him at the same time. And, and like, there's a whole circle around her when her body falls in the middle of the road. And he just runs up. And all I can think of is, it's okay. I'm an architect. <laughs> yeah, it's um, that, that, that's sort of a strange scene. I mean, the way one of these... Uh mobsters dies is from a poisoned cannoli which brings to mind the godfather three yeah it's kind of nice like there's this little like cafe that's apparently run by that guy's mother and bronson's there reading the sports pages and there's some neat tension when he's trying not to be seen and yeah and uh gummo goes in there you know orders a cannoli has some back and forth with his mom but uh Paul manages to get by the cannoli and he sprinkles some white powder on it, mixed that, you know, gets, of course, lost within the powdered sugar, which we find out later is cyanide. But yeah, he, he eats it uh, and he dies. And we see the whole death. It's not like Bronson just leaves and we flash to a newspaper about him dying. Like we see him slowly go into shock and not breathe. And the actress playing his mother, she has a complete and total freak out. It's an amazing freak out. It's a great scene, and um, although you mentioned we don't see a newspaper right away, this movie does do the the trope of showing cutting to the newspaper when one of these guys gets killed. Oh yeah, it's like cannoli death curse. They're they're all all the headlines are trying to be headless body found in topless bar, but they're not. They're never quite that clever. No, I think um, uh, one of the (laughs) headlines I read in a tabloid that was almost as good as that was. Oh, it was um, George Michael, I think, had 
had hit somebody with a car or something at some point, and the headline was "Wake Me Up Before You Go Slow." Oh, <laughs> a real, oh, a real New dear. York Post kind of headline. Um, <laughs> but, but anyhow, the, oh, yeah. the the most infamous scene from this film that all the reviews point out, even the Leonard Moulton review, which has like two sentences, <laughs> is the soccer ball scene, which yeah. is so unbelievably stupid. It's a little bit brilliant, I think. Well, well, this this is when he's fallen Bugs Bunny because when he goes after uh, Freddy Freddy Flakes and he called Freddy Flakes because he has dandruff. We never see the dandruff. We just he like every scene he's in, he just says something where he complains about dandruff. Mm-hmm. But you know, he's got this high tech mansion with all these security systems and like massive computers built into the walls. It's like either some sort of evil genius lives there, and I guess that that's him. But you know, he's there with his floozy. There's some casual nudity of them in the bath, and she's putting medicated shampoo on him. Uh, and yeah, so there's a scene a little bit earlier where Paul Kersey goes to the toy store and they have these like soccer balls but they're remote control soccer balls you can use this car remote to make them roll around uh, and so you know how every movie in this series it, it's like an early appearance by somebody great uh, yeah that's right this movie this is the first on screen role of BB-8 BB-8 played that soccer ball I you're right I, I could tell by the way it it pivoted as it went around corners. Oh, yeah. And these sarcastic bleeps and bloops. But anyway, uh, so he takes the soccer ball uh, to Frankie Flakes' house. And Frankie Flakes is delightfully paranoid. Apparently, he he's appears to be paranoid in general. But he's just even more paranoid due to his compatriots getting murdered. So Paul just pops the soccer ball uh, through, the, through the gate and uses the remote to have it roll around and set off all the motion detectors. So he and his floozy see the motion detectors. They get freaked out. So he jumps out of the bath to investigate and is immediately completely dressed with all the stuff out of his hair. Yeah, and dried off. Horrible, like, comically terrible continuity. You know, but he goes outside and... Bronson basically makes the soccer ball roll all the way around the house. Now, he can't see the other side of the house, so he's got some good control. Um, Uh... And finally, when Frankie Flakes makes his way back to the front, the soccer ball is just in the middle of his driveway. So he goes, picks up the soccer ball. Uh, Bronson, you know, says, hey, I got a message from Olivia. Presses an, a button on the remote control. And the guy goes, no, and the soccer ball blows up. And there's a great model shot of him blowing up. But then we get to see his top half on fire as he runs around his his driveway like Daffy Duck. Then he flops over. Then his floozy comes out and starts freaking out as as he lays there dying on the ground. Oh my god, this is one of the best kill scenes in this whole series. But like, it blows up right near his face. Like, that's pretty cold. Like... But but it also means that Bronson, because we know he can home alone stuff, so that means Bronson was able to open up the soccer. He opened up the soccer ball and and probably rigged a plastic explosive in there. And obviously, those kind of things have like a counterweight, so he probably just replaced the counterweight with some C four or, or nitro nine or something. Well, and then he also modified the remote control to make it so the button would set off. Oh yeah, the the, explosive, the extra button, the extra button, and to make it beep right before it goes off. But how does the guy know to say, oh, no, because he's holding a soccer ball? Like, what could that possibly mean? 
I guess he put it together. I mean, he's a he. I mean, he's the crazy one. He's the wild card. Yeah. He himself might be devious enough, devious enough to put a bomb in a remote control soccer ball. Now, I have to have to ask you: Do you think that was always written in the script that way? Do you think that in the original script it was a remote control car, which seems way more plausible? Or do you think like? They found that somebody found that soccer ball and says, no, no, Golan, this is how you do it. I think it has to be that last one. The remote control car does make more sense is more of a natural choice. But I think maybe some maybe the prop person was at a toy shop and said, you know, oh, the soccer ball, this could be different. Um, and I mean, to be fair, I used to play some soccer when I was younger. And this would be a good joke thing to put this on the field. And have it like move away from people as they're in the middle of a game. Now, now, <laughs> Be a regular bloopers and practical jokes. Right now, now whether this remote control soccer ball could withstand the repeated kickings of an actual game without breaking uh, <laughs> is a different question entirely. It would need to be of a good weight, have some good reinforcement on the, all the different bits and bobs. But, but there you go. It's it, 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 this is really an inspired. Um, ridiculous scene and i think in a way the the high point of the movie because afterwards the the climax is in that subterranean dress factory and it really just looks like a warehouse and it's it's pretty kind of standard run and gun disappointing shootout at that point mostly yeah i mean there's not there's not there's not too much else in the movie before then but like you know we we see a lot of mafia funerals including one (laughs) Where like a boy delivers a message on behalf of Bronson and everyone at the funeral pulls out guns and the priest is so blase about it. I feel like it must always happen. Please, please. This is a house of peace. Put your firearms away, please. That that scene seems to hold on that for such a long time. Like I thought you, you show the kid show up with the message, the people draw, the mobsters draw the guns on him. And then I, I think you would cut to another scene at that point, but no, like it holds on for another minute. Apparently they thought the priest gag was really funny. Like that is set in a church is kind of quirky and, and that um Irish are, are are quite pious people, uh for the most part, if you're going by the stereotypes, is like that's an interesting setting for that kind of a scene. I mean it it's it but it's so comical it almost jars with the rest of the movie. I mean it really is shot just like it's out of a comedy. It's a perfect action reaction look to things. Um but you know Olivia Regent has to die so she ends up falling out of a second story window and uh getting splattered and uh we see Bronson react. Um Bronson is for all intents and purposes taking care of Chelsea uh in his home under police custody but then uh as uh, as the biological father, Tommy O'Shea, just kind of comes in and takes her and punches Bronson in the stomach. You'd think somebody would notice and report him for assault. Um, but it's at this point that... that uh, that you know, we we know at this point that there has to be a mole getting information between the DA's office, the FBI, and and O'Shea's organization. And my thought was, well, it's going to turn out to be Saul Rubinek because he's the biggest named actor. But it's not. It's uh, Kenneth Walsh as Lieutenant Mickey King, who is the mole. And he goes to O'Shea and explains Bronson's whole background, explains the history of the vigilante killings, and explains that Bronson's going to be going all his, his fighting, shooting his way up the chain of command, but that they're going to make arrangements to try to get the drop on uh, Bronson. Um, and it doesn't it doesn't quite work. Bronson ends up killing uh, Mickey King, putting his body in a crate in the laundromat. <laughs> 
as a present. It start, It almost turns into Saw. It, yeah, that, that, that was a bit gruesome. But this eventually does lead to a full-on... Uh, uh, to the, to the big climax in the laundromat where he tries to rescue Chelsea. There's chases, there's shootouts. So the shootout stuff that happens in the laundromat is pretty straightforward. There is nothing special going on whatsoever. However, there are these occasional lulls in the action that get really creative. One being when a forklift barrels out of control and everyone thinks Kersey's in it and they start shooting it, but it's a decoy. It's just a mannequin he propped in the driver's seat. There's also a bit where he catches, where he manages to capture one of the goons to find out where Chelsea is and he won't talk, so he takes him to this like shrink wrapping machine and like wraps him in shrink wrap and makes him suffocate until he confesses then puts him on one of those clothing racks, just, you know, I guess to add insult to injury. That guy later gets shot by one of his own guys who panics when he sees this plastic mummified guy uh, come around. Uh, but finally, it builds to the point where it's a final showdown between O'Shea and Kersey. Of course, near the vat of acid, there's an electric fence down there for some reason. I don't know why, but it ends. Uh, he doesn't shoot uh, O'Shea. He just thumps him in the chest with the butt of a shotgun and he falls into the vat of acid and we finally get to see that glorious acid death we were promised in the opening scenes. And the effects when he disintegrates in acid are are just okay. Like, they should have shown a skeleton in a bad suit at some point. That that would have been better. Um, Or have him crawl out like the guy with the toxic waste in Robocop and then pop like a fleshy balloon. And when they're having the fight by the acid pool, I almost wish they would have drug that out a bit more and had some more tension or you know one guy keeps on getting the up on the other guy and you're not sure who's going to be thrown in the acid maybe Tommy Shea says I'm the master now and Bronson says only a master of evil O'Shea right maybe like uh Kersey's at the bottom like his his the 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 end of his jacket is being dipped into the acid we see it being dissolved and then he does a sort of like bicycle kick thing and flips O'Shea oh I almost forgot over his head right before before then, there's also a goon that Kersey, like, knocks down a ramp. He goes into this, like, big wood chipper machine. Yes. And all of his blood and guts fills up a mail sack on the other end of the wood chipper. I don't know what that has to do with cleaning clothes, but oh my god. That's a, that's, that's a trauma-worthy way to kill somebody with a piece of machinery. Uh, certainly. It was really... Um... I mean, so now that you mention it, there was some creative moments here, but I think just just visually, this the dress factory looks so bland. It's like any warehouse in Vancouver, British Columbia. It's oh, and it was all Vancouver. <laughs> was it? I bet. Um, yeah, this was fi- this was filmed with uh, with Vancouver in in place of New York, playing New York, which is not unusual. A lot of movies do this to save money. Um, oh, oh, true, and, true. And Canada's uh, uh, usually superior uh, tax benefits for the. Uh, to encourage filmmaking there, um, and I just but you know the police, the police show up and and you know wow you did good work and then Bronson just like walks away, uh, and walks away in into the light and says hey lieutenant if you need any help you give me a call, I almost expected him to disappear like a Jedi ghost as he walked out that door, but yeah he just walks away the end go to credits. I mean every Death Wish movie pretty much ends that way right with him walking off into the sunset kind of a cowboy. Shot. In, in, a, in a way, yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, so overall, I think um, 
I think that that soccer ball scene is is just good enough for me to give this a sequel, yes. I don't think this is the best movie in the world, but if you've watched the Death Wish movies this far, you have already seen the lows of the lows. This is, you know, sort of square down the middle in terms of quality, but that soccer ball scene is is so good. And I mean, yeah, it's and this movie is far from a disaster. Right. It's like it's good. It's good, not great, but it's good in these ways that keep me interested. Sequel, yes, I would, I would love to see what would happen next, if only to see either how creative they would get or how bad it would tank. And uh, with that, we go into pitch a sequel. I have, uh, I have something in mind right now. It is so. Uh, yep. Paul Kersey has uh, been a vigilante five times over, killed countless people. <laughs> we start with him on his deathbed and uh in his will it says he gets cremated however a uh a crafty uh weapons expert takes some of paul kersey's ashes (laughs) puts them into a a special gun he fabricates called the kersey and uh and sells it at, at high prices to the highest bidder this gun uh contains the ashes of Paul Kersey, the famous vigilante. So everyone knows now. Yeah, everyone knows. And um, it gets bought by a uh, a member of uh, the mafia who... It's like... It's, it's, it's almost like a monkey's paw kind of story. It's like this cursed gun that has the spirit of Paul Kersey in it. And you would have voiceover from Charles Bronson kind of telling people like... You don't want to be part of the mafia. You want to go street, okay? You got to kill him with me, the friendly gun. It's like an evil Thor's hammer. Yes. <laughs> whoever, wh- if ye be worthy, whoever holds this pistol will possess the power of Gersey. Right, and and so he's it's sort of like a Jedi ghost inside of a gun, and uh, it would be called uh, Death Wish Six: Curses Loaded. <laughs> Well, I guess I was going to do something of a uh, a supernatural turn as, as as well. I feel like he needs a good death scene because uh, every every actor wants to play it. So my uh, Death Wish sequel is going to start with uh, it's going to start in the middle of a gunfight where Kersey is you know shooting shooting up uh, shooting up goons and drug dealers and thugs and whatnot, and uh, he ends up they're all dead, but he ends up getting shot and he dies. And he ends up going straight to hell. Uh, but once in hell, he manages to find a gun. And so he starts re-killing his way through all of history's worst criminals until he eventually kills Satan, escapes from hell, comes back into his own body as this weird, undead, immortal Bronson. Uh, and it promises more sequels to come where now it's a zombie who's killing people on the streets of New York. And it's going to be called uh, Death Wish 666 Undeath Wish. And who would the devil be played by? Oh, you know, you know what? Shatner. Hmm, that's... Hi, I'm the devil. You thought it'd look he a bit... kind of like Danny Crane. Yeah. You thought it'd be a bit scarier, didn't you? Well, the devil comes in many forms, often with a smile. <laughs> hey, I do know why God needs a starship. 
my friend. So yeah, that's mine. Yeah. Uh, did you know I was a fallen angel, but I was the best angel in the business. That's why I was too good for heaven. That's why I'm in hell. Oh my. <laughs> Attention all demons. New prime directive. Get cursy. Mm-mm-mm. Boy, howdy. Okay, so with that stellar transition, <laughs> on to what you're watching. So, Thrasher, what are you watching? So, I I was really, really, really wanted to see uh, a classic B-movie a few nights ago, so I treated myself to the uh, classic horror western Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. Uh, and this this is a perfect good bad movie. It it is just a preposterous premise. Frankenstein's daughter moves to Gold Rush territory during the Old West to continue her father's research, uh, using using bodies pulled from collapsed mines to conduct her experiments. And also, Jesse James is there. <laughs> Do the actors play it like they know they're in a piece of shit? Or do they actually try? Um, they mostly play it straight. Um, Nadia Onyx, who plays uh, Dr. Maria Frankenstein, she is very heightened, and I can't tell whether she's deliberately going for camp or whether the Aust- the Genevan accent she's doing, whether she's just not good at it and it makes it seem like camp. Because her, her accent's clearly fake, but she really tries to hit every, every part of it. Uh, but, I mean, there's lots of... Old, gruesome old special effects. There's lots of uh, metal helmets with Jacob's ladders on them. I mean, it's it's whatever movie you're imagining when I say Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. This is probably exactly what you're imagining. So there's some kind of a shootout, I imagine, at some point. Oh yeah, there, there's a decent amount of gunplay. There's a giant Frankenstein monster attack. Uh, there's a uh, there's revenge. There's trying to clear people's names. Hmm. I mean, I would just say, you know, just just watch it. Apparently, there is a DVD edition that has a full-length commentary by Joe Bob Briggs. I would love to hear his commentary on this. I might try to track that down myself. Yeah, I think it's neat that Joe Bob Briggs is having kind of a second wind with the success of his um, sort of, I don't know if it's oh, last... seasonal, but his series on Shudder, The Last Drive-In. Yeah, I, I think it counts as seasonal, because I know they're working on they because they did their two specials. Uh, they're two special marathons. They did the first season of the last drive-in and they, they're hype. He's hot. He and uh, uh, Darcy, the male girl have been also known as Diana Prince. Uh, they've both been hyping the second season online. So I'm, I'm presuming it's going to be coming out uh, within a month or two. But uh, Nar- uh, one of the th- thing about this movie, Narda Onyx, who played uh, Dr. Maria Frankenstein, this was the last thing she ever did on either movies or television, but then she went on to be an author. She wrote uh, Johnny Weissmuller's biography, uh, Johnny Weissmuller being the famous film Tarzan. Oh, wow. Hmm. How about that? Um, yeah, well, I mean, with, with uh, Joe Bob Briggs and, and Shudder and stuff, I, I hope that makes uh, a lot of his books uh, get reprinted. He wrote quite a lot of books on a film criticism, uh, reprinting his like newspaper articles and having essays and so forth. And and I tried to pick up one the other day, and there are so many are out of print and quite expensive. Yeah, I'd love to track some of those down. I I, I love his musings on film. Oh, excuse me. So I saw a movie that was a a sequel because it's a sequel, and we might discuss it on the show at some point. I won't get into it too deeply. 
God. Yuck, excuse me, this uh, allergies. Um, this is Ralph Breaks the Internet, the sequel to Wreck-It Ralph. Oh, I still haven't it's seen streaming. that. I, lo- I liked the first one. Yeah, it's one. streaming on Netflix uh, right now um, in the United States. But uh, it is, um, it, I think the big problem with it, not to get into the particulars, is the main plot of the movie is solved halfway through the movie. And so they have to come up with huh. a second plot that feels a bit forced. And um, I think part of the charm of the first movie is kind of how limited in scope it was. And this one just tries to do every little thing it, it can because the internet is such a broad topic. It tries to shove everything in there. And I think the movie suffers from it. And I think um, the the story is not as inspired so it, it's not, it's not bad. It just I found it disappointing, and it has a runtime of one hundred twelve minutes, which is pretty long for this kind of a movie. I don't know. It seems just about right. Perhaps, perhaps it is. Oh wait, you said one hundred and twelve yes. minutes, not an hour and twelve. No, minutes. oh no, that does seem. I said one hundred and twelve. Yeah, it. so almost two hours. Uh, I, I do think one thing this movie does better than the first one is because of the success of the first one, you get more cameos from actual video game characters and so forth. Oh, they didn't have to create as many as many generic equivalents. Right. Um, and, and there's a scene that was featured in the trailers that um, seems like they're setting it up for a spinoff that features all the Disney princesses. Oh, right. And that's quite a good scene. Um, on the other hand, like, that could have been its own movie. Like, it, so, who knows? I'm kind of shocked it hasn't been. Yeah, yeah, like, I mean, you know, I have nieces and nephews and, and all these things, and so when I go to these, like, like toy section at Target or whatever, you see they have the whole Disney princesses line of, of like, the, the bath towels and the dresses and the T-shirts and stuff. And uh, and the Disney Channel certainly did shows like House of Villains, right, where all the bad guys are all together. And But, but why they haven't done something with all the Disney princesses just sort of seems like, like a natural, especially since these characters are either public domain or invented by Disney. It's not like you have rights issues to deal with. I've certainly been branding the heck out of them. Uh, yes, you know, just much like they have with Tinkerbell, with all those uh, <laughs> uh, direct-to-video features, for that matter. And uh, I, I think another thing that helps sells the, the reality, as it were, of the internet setting of Ralph Breaks the Internet is they use logos from actual internet companies, which, of course, why wouldn't you? That's free advertising. But So Stamps.com, Casper Mattress, uh, uh, Warby Parker. Pets.com. uh I think you'll find it's pronounced pits.com. Yeah, with the sock puppet. Um, the, <laughs> the Quiznos kind of monstrous hamster. <laughs> the, uh, the the dancing Kenya lion. The whatever the fuck from Newgrounds. Salad fingers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just the, the worst parts of the internet. Um, Although salad figure, fingers was pretty fun. I, I still stand by my uh, my belief that one of the most interesting days on the internet is September twelfth, two thousand one, 
because of the because of the shit show on new grounds of September 11th inspired things that people threw up was absolutely insane. It, you know, it was people you, in the moment reacting to a point in history with the internet still sort of in its infancy and people could, you know, kind of hack it with pirated versions of flash to upload cartoons. And it was just pure nuttiness. There is a, uh... You know, that is something I had thought about, like, especially now that we have, like, podcasts. A, 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 I, there's a project I'm planning for the future. It's really just for me, although I may try to turn it into something where where a significant historical event that has happened since the invention of podcasting, I want to just go through and listen to all the podcasts that came out the ne- the week after. Mm. And see how that event filters into the podcasts. Right. It. I was reminded of this a bit when I, I, I've been reading a book by, I think, Cliff Nesterhoff called The Comedians. It's sort of a mm. broad history of stand-up comedy um, in the U.S. from the vaudeville days all the way to present day. And you get to the point after September 11th, and it did remind me of how all the different late-night shows, whether it's The Daily Show or David Letterman or Jay Leno, uh, and so forth, reacted to it in Saturday Night Live and so forth. And that was a very, very, um, I mean, sad time, obviously, but very interesting, too, to see how could you do comedy again, or how could you get back into it, right? <laughs> and, and, well, it's because you don't have any other options. Uh, that's right, and, and, and comedy, in, in some ways, is a coping mechanism. So... With that serious note, uh, let's do a scene from Death Wish 5. Uh, Simple yes. scene, let's pull it up. And can you set the scene? So this is the scene uh, where where Big Al, Gummo Travolta as I call him, is going to the laundromat uh, to take care of the laundered money. But uh, this is also when uh, Saul, the guy who works there, is wearing the wire and is trying to get him to say something incriminating. Okay, and uh, which part do you want to play? I guess I'll do Big Al. Okay, I'll do Sal and I'll do Chuck. So, okay. and I'll I'll do the narration, the dialogue description. Cool. Big Al is wired in trying to implicate Sal and Chuck. Oh, what about the laundry shipment coming in this afternoon? Laundry? Oh, you mean clothes for the homeless shelter? Confused. What? You, what? You know, uh, homeless people, people without homes. Huh? You forgot, Albert. You don't know care about people less fortunate than yourself? That's disgusting. I'm striking you for my Christmas list. And and there's this one bit right after that, because again, the, the microphone is disguised as a pen. He says when after he says he's gonna mark him off the list, he says, Let me borrow your pen. And for and you know, rather than doing the sensible thing and reaching for the real pen in your coat pocket and handing it over, he just moves his jacket to the side and lets Sal root around in that pocket for one of the two pens that don't look anything alike going back and forth and eventually pulling out the real pen. I think he has a bit of a fetish about people moving around in his pockets. <laughs> oh, this, this, this movie is unsavory in that way. Oh, you know, I, I was uh, looking at my phone here. We're getting a call in from uh, everyone's uh, least favorite guest, Shecky Spielboig. Oh, wow. Let me, let me just put him on the line. Beep, beep, bop, bop. Uh, 
Hey, Shecky, what's going on? How you doing, Trasher? You, you've been talking about these Death Fish movies. Uh, well, De- Death Wish, yes, we, we just completed the uh, Death Wish 5, The Face of Death, a title whose significance I just got. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but, although we're at the tail end of that, that conversation, uh, Shecky. Well, no, I, I think you really sh- oh, I should have been talking about the movies I made uh, to kind of uh, ride the coattails of Mr. Charles Bronson, Death Fish. Who played the fish? My pet fish, Snookums. Not Abe Vigoda. No, not Abe Vigoda. So, so the first movie was in the seventies. I, I was, I was but a child. I had my uh, eight uh, eight millimeter handycam I got from the Sears Roebuck catalog, and I pointed it. In fact, I stuck it inside the aquarium, and my little fish, uh, Mister Fishy, and I said, "Action!" And as he swims around, I go, "Oh, he has a death fish." Now this broke the camera, but uh, I, I remade this five years later when I put the camera outside of the aquarium. <laughs> so a lesson well learned. That's right. And uh, of course, in these movies, uh, Charles Bronson kills people. So how do I have fish kill people? I film in an extreme close-up, and the fish is grieving about people he's killed in the past life, and then I never show it. See, so all you see is footage of fish swimming around. You get his disturbing internal monologue. Oh, and who was the voice of the fish for these monologues? It was my uh, one of my cousins, Schmecky Spielboy. There's more of you. Uh, oh, of course, uh, we are many. We are legion. Schmecky and Schmecky, we uh, <laughs> we were we would we would always go and uh, hit up the candy store and steal uh, steal gumdrops and zoom zoom bees. <laughs> Now, how, what did you do to keep this series fresh as you made sequels? Well, uh, as you might know, Mr. Fishy died in, a, in an accident. I, uh, sometimes I'd get lonely. I'd take him with me into the toilet. One day I dropped him in, flushed him, and uh, there he goes. So uh, I, uh, I went to the store, bought a different fish, and uh, had it in a different aquarium, a little bit of a change of scenery. And, uh, and that's how I kept, kept it fresh. Especially for uh, Death Fish Four, the uh, the crackfish. This this <laughs> one I fed fish number two, uh, crack from my personal uh, storage. The fish didn't last long, but oh. you got to see a fish overdose in real time. Kind of like fishes of a, kind yeah. of like my famous movie Fishes of Death. It's a grim, uncompromising look at the human condition. So, what did you do with uh, Deathfish Five or Deathfish Fin, uh, the fish of death? With that Deathfish uh, Deathfin Five, the fin of death, I, uh, you know, you know, I'm a bit of a hairy man. I have a lot of razor blades around to, to help uh, cut off my hair. So, I, I using a bit of uh, dental floss, like, dental floss. I put a, a razor blade to the fin of. Uh, my fish, who now it's, this is Mr. Fishy number four, if you keep on track. Unfortunately, the weight of the razor was too much, and the fish floated down and died at the bottom of, uh, he couldn't get enough bubbles, he couldn't live. So he died at the bottom of his fish tank. And you got to see, yet again, just like Death Wish 4, another fish die in real time. So it's the irony. He is the fin of death because he has the uh, razor blade on the back of the fish. But the weight is too much, much like the weight in his heart, and it kills him. So when the uh, when the big budget remake of Death Wish came out, did you try to capitalize on that? Funny thing you mentioned that that 
big budget remake originally. Sylvester Stallone was going to do it, and then eventually it was uh, Bruce Willis. However, we um, so when it finally came out, I got ah, geez, I got a, you know, I I I recently found out I'm allergic to fish, so uh, that's why I sneeze so much still uh, when I think about Mr. Fishy. It is ah, jeez, it's quite emotional. But uh, so so I I go and I see uh, I I get a a Finding Nemo toy using spray paint. I make it black. And I uh, I put it in my bathtub. And as it goes around, I decide I need to freshen it up. I make it a crossover with my famous series, The Toyminator. And The Toyminator and <laughs> Deathfish go and fight together in the swimming pool. It's a regular fish and chip situation. Uh, that's right. The chips really hit the fan on that one. The microchips. Because of a robot. Yes. And uh, also at the end for the death scene... I wanted like a splatter effect, but because it's a toy, you can't really make it splatter. So I cut it open, took out the, uh, took out all the cotton, and replaced it with uh, piping, piping hot mushy peas. <laughs> you haven't seen mushy peas until they squirted out of a stuffed fish into a hot bath. That's that's quite the sight. I suspect that's your fetish, Shiki. Uh if anyone else is interested, I. I have a, a domain I just purchased. It's called uh, mushypeashotbath.com. <laughs> well, thank you, Shaggy, for giving us this uh, this look at the life of an independent filmmaker. Oh, you're welcome. It gets harder and harder uh, every day to compete with YouTube having the global marketplace. On the other hand, you know, when, when people's toaster can, can make a movie with the built-in video camera, uh, even an infant can do it. I saw I saw a kid in Thailand... Is making six million dollars and bought his family a house for showing toys. So uh, I think I have some ideas of how to exploit my my uh, my grandsons. Well, I mean that is what you do best, Shecky. That is what you do best. Yes, I just, just I I don't just do exploitation. I do shexploitation. All right. Good night. <laughs> also, the title of your upcoming autobiography. Uh, yeah, shexploitation. How I shecked my way to the top. <laughs> That's better than the original title, Shecking and Schleppin'. <laughs> that I one one final thing. Did I ever tell you what my uh, what my film was? My what inspired me to get into movies? Uh, your Shex appeal? Uh, no, 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 not my Shex appeal. Although that's that uh, could be why I betted my first lady at age thirty three. But uh, I'll leave that at that. But uh, I, it, uh, what it was was I, I saw a movie on TV on the te- on the television, and it was uh, the the TV version of Dracula starring Jack Palance. And I thought, wow, what an actor! What a cape! What teeth! If he makes movies, if he makes women wobbly in the knees, this is a career for me. Well, I mean, I believed it or not, and uh, and I proceeded to never make a vampire picture. So there you go. Well, I'm sure I'm sure we'll get to that if we ever do cover a Dracula series. Okay, so we just lost the connection with Shecky, but that's uh, that, that was really quite something about all, all the death uh, death fin movies, the death fish movies. Uh, that, that's the most forthcoming uh, Shecky has ever been with us, I think. Yeah, he was he was raw, he was honest. Um, he, he was. We finally broke through that hard exterior of his. In fact, I've had. Um, I floated the idea, and we've had fans kind of interested in it, of, of maybe me digging through the archives. This would take a really long time. But to have, like, an all-Shecky <laughs> show, 
of just clips. And also doing a show of all the clips of the BBC sequel cast uh, series, Sequentially oh, Yours. Oh, yeah. Because I think we've done enough of these sketches where it's almost episode length. Well, no, they're not sketches. They're interviews. We oh, interviews, I mean. But, you know, the interviews, the length of a sketch, as it turns out. But, yeah, these... And Slimer can be there, too. <laughs> it, could, it could be narrated by Slimer. I'll <laughs> to the next clip. That, that that would be great. It's like Ken Burns documentary slow pans over photographs of the Civil War and Okay. Um so next week we're gonna be talking about uh the twenty eighteen I can't believe it's that recent. I thought it came out longer ago. The twenty eighteen remake of Death Wish starring Bruce Willis, directed by Edgar Wright. No, fuck. You think no. we'd be on our third remake? It's not Edgar Wright. It is Eli Roth. <laughs> Although Edgar Wright doing Death Wish would be something indeed. Two very different filmmakers. Uh, sure. But Death Wish, um, yeah. I, I, I'll be curious to see what you think of this one. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. It originally was going to be written and directed by Joe Carnahan who did um, hmm. such movies as Smoking Aces and um, The Grey with Liam Neeson and Fighting Off the Wolves and stuff. Hmm. And Narc, which is a pretty good movie. But um, he he dropped out over Death Wish over the infamous Creative Differences. And so part <laughs> of his script was used, but apparently the Joe Carnahan script was a lot more intelligent and it got... Uh, significantly dumbed down in this version that we'll talk about next episode. So, um, do you have a, a book you'd like to promote, Thrasher? I know you've been hard at work writing. I know there's stuff you cannot talk about, but well, actually, it should uh, it should still be going on by the time this episode uh, drops. And let me uh, let me just make bring this up so I can. Uh... All right, so uh, I am involved with a Kickstarter currently. Um, oh. Skirmisher Publishing, uh, they're, they're a gaming company I've done a lot of work for. So one of their flagship books when the company got founded was City Builder, which was a guide to designing uh, designing uh, medieval and renaissance and fantasy communities based, based in part on literature, but also actual historical research. Uh, and this being around the 10th anniversary of all that skirmisher is working on city builder platinum edition. It's a new, very, very expanded edition that I'm going to be writing several uh, mm. entries for, uh, the Kickstarter, uh, it has been funded. So it's been funded several times over. Uh, so it's, it's good to go, but there is still, still plenty of time to back if you want to get a, a PDF or hardcover. So I would say just go to Kickstarter, look for city builder platinum edition, or check out, check me out on Twitter at internet, mayor i'm posting something about this kickstarter about at least once a day so that will include links to it if you uh, don't want to bother searching for it that's great um yeah i have an announcement myself i can finally talk about this i've been dancing around it for months but uh my first kind of solo book um because i I had contributed to the hardcore gaming 101 presents nes cult classics uh, but my first solo book is the films of Uwe Boll, Volume 1, The Video Game Movies, through Moon Books Publishing. Nice. Comes out at the end of September. You can pre-order it on Amazon. Um, it is the first 
English language book about Uwe Boll, which I find very hard to believe that no one else has done this before. It is it is not a making of book. It's more of sort of long, in depth sort of essays of my um, criticisms and my feelings on, on these films. And uh, full disclosure, and I mentioned this in the acknowledgments, I am currently working on a video game for Uwe Boll. Um, however, I don't think that affects the book really. The book is my unauthorized opinions on his movies. Um, which I happen to like his films. I mean, that's why I'm working with Uwe on something. But there you go. And uh, I have two more volumes of that I'm working on, which will be coming out oh, uh, in, in 2020 at some point. But um, And those nice. will be on the early drama films and the later drama films. And uh, yeah, so I mean, it, it was a lot of work. It took almost uh, two years to come to pass. Um, I'm not the... Some of it's, you know, you know, writing is hard, Thrasher. It takes a lot of time. And... Especially yes, writing nonfiction, when you're watching a movie, you have to keep it like pausing the movie and you go back. What did this guy say? What's happening in this scene? How does this connect to this? Take some notes. Make some notes. Yeah, yeah. So it's, um, and I am also dipping my toe into writing some fiction again, which I haven't done in a long time because I found it really relaxing in that I can listen to music mm. and write, but I can't listen to music while I'm writing nonfiction. It's just too, uh, too distracting. Hmm. Well, you know, somebody had to write the first English language book on UA Bowl, and I'm glad it was you. Thank you. Yeah, no, I, I hope um, hope people enjoy it, and uh, yeah, and and that's that. So, yeah, it's. Um, I hope Uwe makes more films. He sort of officially retired uh, a few years ago with third Rampage movie. When I say Rampage, I mean Uwe Bowl's Rampage, not the the movie with the Rock based on the the arcade game. <laughs> uh, so maybe you'll see another movie out of him now he's lately he's become a restaurant tour in vancouver british columbia with his restaurant bauhaus uh, that'd be fun to yeah, check yeah. out if i can ever yeah high-end german cuisine uh, some stuff's more high-end than others it's kind of like pub affair as well um but the idea was to do german cuisine that wasn't just schnitzel and sauerkraut and the uh, sort of stereotypical German food, but that's enough about Uwe Ball. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet follow Mayor. Follow show on Twitter at SequelCast2. Like our page, SequelCast2, on Facebook, and go to the Apple Podcast app and leave us a uh, delightful review. And our theme song is written and performed by Mark with a C. Check out his music at markwithac.com. You can also listen to us on Stitcher, a fact I keep on forgetting. But there you have it. <laughs> and uh, next time, we'll be talking about the 2018 remake of Death Wish, titled Death Wish. Oh, I'm looking forward to it. Uh, you might not after watching the film, but okay. Well, we'll see. Yeah, <laughs> it's often like that with Eli Roth. Yes, and, uh, and this will wrap up our summer of Death Wish. And uh, what is it we'll be covering afterwards? We are going to be looking at a pair of old favorites to see if they hold up. We're going to be looking at Wayne's World and Wayne's World yep, 2. Yeah, I've got to add them to the back to the sequel cast library. Uh, and um, yeah, th- those are really quite something. Uh, there, there's been rumblings of a Wayne's World 3 at the 2019 Oscars. Uh, Mike Myers and Dana Carvey were on stage, not dressed in character, but speaking in character to introduce the trailer to Bohemian Rhapsody because it was one of the Best Picture nominees. And on the Saturday Night Live, was it the 40th anniversary special? They did a Wayne's World sketch again for the first time in years. Uh, 
I believe they did, yes. And uh, I, I think, I, you know, if they were to bring back a Mike Myers uh, property, I would rather see a new Wayne's World over a new Austin Powers, but that's just me. I mean, you might as well make it a trilogy. That's what they're doing with Bill and Ted, finally. <laughs> yeah. They uh, just uh, are almost finished filming that with the Bill and Ted face the music. And like, it, it, it's a shame that George Carlin still isn't around. Yeah, that is a shame. I'm, I'm wondering if there's going to be a little tribute to him in the movie somewhere. As long as it's not as clumsy as, as like having like a, as some of the business they did in Indiana Jones and the Kingdom of the Crystal Skull with like a, a framed photograph of the guy or something as the camera pans along. Like it should, if, if they're going to do a shout out to uh, Rufus and they should, it should be something uh, clever. Like an animatronic statue that plays music, like something out of a Chuck E. Cheese. Station indeed. <laughs> All right. Um, for sequel cast two, this is Matt. This is Thrasher. You, 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 you want you want to serve me a cannoli? You want to serve me a cannoli? Right? Died because he choked on a cannoli. Oh, hey, you know there's two there's two mob guys named Freddy in this movie. Freddy, Frankie. You know if it ends with a a Y, two Freddies and a Frankie. Frankie yeah, and a Frankie. Um, they should have fixed that. They should, you know, it might have been just poor improv who just, in the script, maybe it was Mobster 1 and Mobster 2, and the actor was like, I know, I, I'll be Freddy. And there's no continuity <laughs> person on set. I don't know how these things work. Do a music, musical vaudeville thing. I'm Freddy. I'm Frankie. We're two of a kind. Um, oh, damn it. I don't... Uh, Gilbert, <laughs> Gilbert Gottfried used to do a, a two-man set with him and... Oh, who's the old, tall comedian who, um, God, did like UFO, or I think he's done like... Richard Belzer? Yes, Richard Belzer. Him and Belzer used yeah. to do a show together where Gilbert pretended to be a ventriloquist and it was like stinky and stanky. Or it was <laughs> like the most hack vaudeville name, but I'll have to track down. You, you ever see the Weird Al show? Oh, it was so ahead of its time. Yeah. Well, there, there's a there's a bit where like he's answering like a letter, like doing it like Al advice, and he's like reading a letter from the audience, and it's from a kid. Like I have an imaginary friend, but you know my friends uh, make make fun of me. Should I stop having an imaginary friend? He's like, no, having an imaginary friend is great. It means you're creative and means you're empathic. I mean, hey, and I'll tell you the truth, I have an imaginary friend. You know his uh, his name is his name is Gilbert, and you know people you know people make fun of me, but I wouldn't trade him for the world. And Gilbert Gottfried walks on stage and goes, "Al, for the last time, I'm not imaginary." Oh, Gilbert! I wish y'all could hear what Gilbert was saying. Ah! 